Hi, Ashish. Welcome to Network Capital. Hi, Ustaz. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure entirely, Ashish. Uh, I've known you now for nine years, and it's such a pleasure to host you on this podcast. Uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, your career principles, your mental models, and uh, the way you've built a second career. Um, I still remember the first time I met you, and you'd come to uh, give us a guest lecture at YIF, and you touched upon three things. One was the power of compounding. Second was how you managed to get deep work done in an era of distraction. And third was how education has been a constant uh, in your life from St. James to today. So, you know, nine years out, I'm still going to focus on these three elements and expand on that. So let's get started, Ashish. Tell us a bit about who you are. Just a very short snippet because many of our listeners are not from South Asia. They'd love to hear about uh, what you do. Yeah, thanks, Utkash. Yeah, you clearly have a great memory. Uh, you know, nine years of recall. That's phenomenal. You know, my quick background is I grew up in Calcutta. I went to school there and then I went to U.S. for college and worked uh, very quickly in private equity, loved the investing business. And then eventually I moved back after business school to India uh, in 99, early 99, set up a firm called Chris Capital. Uh, and I was there for about 13 years. So all told between the US and India, I had about 20 years in finance and investing. And, uh, you know, my, as you said, education has been one of the constants in my life. And I always had this idea in my head that when I was 30, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, which I accomplished when I founded Chris Capital. And that in my mid-40s, I wanted to have a second career. Benjamin Franklin had always been a role model. He had had like seven or eight careers and had done so much in one lifetime that, um, you know, I finally made it happen uh, in my early 40s, so a little bit ahead of schedule. And so for the last uh, eight years, education's been what I've been primarily been working on. Uh, I'm a founder of Ashoka, as you know, which is how we met. And then I'm a founder of Central Square Foundation, which works on education reform. Um, and both these projects started sort of eight, 10 years ago. So that's really what's consumed my time. And then I have a few new initiatives that I started, all philanthropic, in the last uh, two to three years. So that's been my life in a nutshell. Yeah, no, thank you, Ashish. Uh, so let's start from St. James. Um, you were interested in education and wanted to build a career in education since then. But uh, I believe your mum had a different idea. How did you, do you remember that conversation? How did you take it? Yeah, so it, it's funny. You know, I um, firstly, I love math. So I, I really loved uh, my math teacher. And, you know, he was, a, he was a, a nice man who encouraged me a lot. Uh, I also had a wonderful principal uh, who had me because I was a reasonably good student. I, I, we had this one day when I went and taught uh, middle school. It was a class called Maths is Fun. So outside the curriculum, just tricks and things like that. And, you know, I had a blast uh, doing it. My grandfather had been really good at math. He used to teach me math. So there was something about this, you know, when I discovered that I was a reasonably good teacher, which my grandfather was, uh, and, and people I looked up to were, you know, I went back to my mom at home and said, you know, mom, 
I think I've discovered my passion. I want to be a teacher. I love math. I think I could be a great math teacher. I wow these kids. I'm sure I can do it in any grade. And uh, she quickly threw cold water on those dreams by saying, listen, that's all fine. But, uh, you know, I know that you also have other ambitions. And so why don't, you know, you just stay focused on, at that time I was studying for the IITs or, or getting into an Ivy League college. And, and then we'll think about this later and, uh, and, you know, focus on first having a corporate career and then worry about this later. So I would say it was temporarily suppressed. It wasn't killed in that um, probably the right thing for me because I, I was also equally passionate about the world of business. And that's the path I went down for the next few years. Right. Um, how was Yale? What did you learn there? Yeah, so look, Yale is a great liberal arts college. Coming from a traditional Indian high school, you know, I had a very narrow education. Yale blew my mind because it just opened up a, a window to so many disciplines. It made learning really exciting. And, uh, you know, and also just I became more of a global citizen. Um, and I learned, uh, you know, a number of skills. But above all, I think there was something in the air at Yale which was about spirit of public service. You know, it was, it was something beyond just going to Wall Street and making money. It was something beyond just your personal goals, which was, you know, the objective to serve humanity, to serve your country. And, you know, there were so many smart kids I spoke with who were my peers who were like, you know, I want to go and intern with a, a judge or I want to go work for this senator on Capitol Hill or I want to go work for this think tank or I want to do work for an NGO. Not everybody was just in that rat race to go get the highest salary. And that just boggled my mind, which, which felt like everybody should be trying to go into the highest paying job. And um, in fact, one summer or, or one in, internship, I did work at Brookings and um, got the chance, got exposed to Capitol Hill a bit and actually liked it quite a bit because people there were quite smart. But eventually, I, I sort of really liked markets and Wall Street and I ended up there, in fact, in one of the highest paying jobs, partly because I had a loan and I was very keen to, apart from my scholarship, to pay off the loan, but partly because I did love the world of finance. But I, what I took away from Yale was, I think, this love for learning, a belief that liberal arts education was really important, uh, which helped you not just uh, make a living, but, you know, to, to live a life. Uh, and importantly, this idea of public service. I think those are the takeaways for me. Yeah. Uh, so, Ashish, a few weeks back, we hosted uh, on our podcast a professor from Yale, Helene Londremont. I don't know if she was there when you were there uh, or not. Um, but uh, she spoke about, uh, she talks about open democracy a lot. And she talked about something very similar and something that uh, makes Yale and some of the other universities there stand out. It's the spirit of public service. And I think uh, you have tried to... Uh, build it in in many of the institutions you've founded since in India. Um, I, I just want to just move forward and talk about your Wall Street uh, days while you were there in the first couple of years. I remember once you were telling me about the rigor and discipline it teaches you, amongst other things. But despite the busy hours, you still took time out to uh, volunteer and teach. 
How did you balance both? And uh, what were the foundational investments these first five, six years away from India teach you and set you up for success in future? Yeah, so I would say first and foremost, what Wall Street taught me was just discipline, uh, a, a real work ethic, um, and perfection. You know, I, I uh, worked, you know, every day till 1 or 2 a.m., and I was back in the office at 9 a.m. Um, I mean, work consumed my life, and every Saturday it was the same schedule, maybe left a little bit earlier so one could go out a bit, but Sundays I was working too. Not a full day, but a half day. So, I was single. I had, I was willing to sacrifice spending time with friends. I, I had a lot of friends at work as well. But really, my goal was to hoover up as much as I could in terms of knowledge and, and understand the ropes. And there was a lot of work. It was a demanding workplace. So, the hours were grueling. But, but I, I was not complaining because I was enjoying what I was doing and I was learning a lot. Uh, so, I think that... The, I would say I was very lucky that my first job was one that was really tough. Uh, it really, that work ethic was instilled in me from that point onwards. A second is just very demanding bosses. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people believe in, oh, we shouldn't have as much hard accountability. You know, we believe in empowerment. And I do too, but I think accountability is really important. We need you know, objectives and key results. We need to drive. We need to show displeasure at someone's work. That's the only way the work improves. And I remember my first deal that I worked on as an investment banker, a young guy, was um, to model the breakup of Dun and Bradstreet, which is a SNN, an S and P 500 company. Right. And I worked. I pulled off two all-nighters and I produced a pitch book that was like a hundred plus pages. In those days, you had to stand by graphics who did all the fancy charts for you, got it bound, took it to my boss, Lou Friedman, who was a terror. And, you know, he flipped through it and I could see his face turning red. And then he ripped the book in front of me and tossed it at me. And the binding hit the corner of my head. It, it didn't, I mean, I, it didn't damage anything. But he just shouted and screamed at me. And, you know, in that moment, I felt like shit. I was like, Oh my God, I, I came out of Yale, I worked my ass off to do this, and you know, this guy doesn't even appreciate the work I've done. But he also then told me what he expected. And you know, if I, I look back and I thank Lou because he just raised the bar. Or for that matter, I had a boss who any memo I wrote, he would just shred it to bits, you know. Uh, and he taught me how to write a good memo. Uh, so I think having really high standards and tough bosses is something I really appreciated. And then the thing about what not to do is also what I learned from Wall Street, right. which is, it was a very selfish culture, very individualistic. Um, at a, as a young person, I could see that I was not, I mean, yeah, I did take time out to go teach, but honestly, it was a small bit of time. It's more just to keep my interest alive. I mean, it was just one day of the week. I carved out some time in the morning and, and a colleague of mine and I uh, would go and do this uh, at a, an underprivileged school. But really what I learned was more the rest of my firm was really focused just on making money, on doing deals. on, And they, in the process, became, you know, people who were very arrogant, who were very money minded and didn't care about the little people around them and really treated them like little people. And 
I could see that I was becoming a person who I didn't like. I was becoming arrogant, short-tempered, disdainful. And so I, I, I wanted to get out of Wall Street. And so I, I think what I also learned was you can have high standards, but you can also have a good culture. You can be a nice person. And, and you should have a well-rounded life and aspire to have a good family life um, as opposed to one where it's all work and everything else just falls apart. That's something I clearly did not want. Right. Um, I, I remember you also talked about the importance of leaving at the right time. Um, I came and saw you the day I was leaving for business school and you talked about some of your learnings there and some of the mistakes to avoid. Could you just reflect on what you learned at HBS and uh, um, how did it shape your thoughts about your career, if at all? Yeah, so I think firstly, uh, you know, HBS happened after I'd worked two jobs. Uh, I'd been out in the workplace for three years. Um, I think it was a good time because, I, as I told you, I, I'd worked, you know, grueling hours. I'd been in investment banking, private equity. Um, it was a chance to um, meet lots of people uh, from around the world. So I think the network was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I'm a curious person like you, interested in, not just doing business elsewhere, but in culture, language. I'd learned some Spanish when I was at Yale. I, I took the chance to learn Portuguese when I was at HBS. You know, on the side, I had a Brazilian girlfriend. I went to Brazil five times. So I fell in love with Latin America. Um, and uh, I had a lot of European friends uh, and, and started to like some of those cultures. So it made me a real global citizen, is one. Two is um, I maybe um, you know understood that HBS was more about I mean the case studies were good and gave you the chance to sort of put yourself in the shoes of many other leaders but I think more than anything else it gave me self-confidence gave me the confidence that I could if I had this degree I could take risks and I had a family to back me up I should be taking risks my dad was not an entrepreneur but I felt that I could be an entrepreneur and the third is, it gave me a lot of time to, to reflect, you know, and think about where I wanted to go, you know, with my life. And, and so that's when I, I decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur at age 30. I wanted to have a second career. Gave me the time to, in a sense, chart my journey. And, and I know some things happen serendipitously, but I would say it, as best as one can, if you can have some goalposts and start working towards them, so more likely than not to achieve those goals. And they may get delayed by a year or two or may get advanced by a year or two, but at least you have a goal post. And so through business school, I also had the chance to start working towards my first goal post, which was to start a private equity business in India. I did three field studies connected with India, got to know all the faculty who were doing work in India, who were then very supportive as advisors. I, in the process, discovered a mentor who was willing to support me as I got my fund up and running and my former boss. So I really used HBS also as a stepping stone that time, not only to figure out what I wanted to do, but really in a sense get prepared for entrepreneurial life. And I leveraged the network quite a bit. I mean, I'll give you an example. When I did the field studies, you know, I would stay up along with my partner Raj, who then started Chris Capital with me. We would stay up till three, four in the morning and 
you know, we'd make these trips to India and uh, in the guise of a field study. I mean, I was writing a case, for instance, on India or doing another field study on bankruptcies. Under the guise of these field studies, we wrote to Mr. Tata, Anand Mahindra, Chidambaram, who was finance minister. And we were entrepreneurial enough to play the HBS card, to actually meet all these people. And so really use it also as a tool for networking in India, because I never worked a day other than a couple of summer internships in India, and yet I wanted to start a private equity business in India. So I, I was smart also about, I would say, how I leveraged HBS to launch my business. Got it. Um, when you started uh, your private equity, it was uh, the first or among the first. Um, what was your expectation that what was the potential of the market? And now with the benefit of hindsight, uh, what are some unconventional bets that you took at that time uh, that served you well? And are there some mistakes that you want to reflect on? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, look, I started in early 99. We'd gone through the Asian financial crisis, which hit in 97, 98. So people had written off Asia, right? And I know it was more of an East Asian, Southeast Asian crisis, but from an investor standpoint, I mean, Asia was a write-off at that point. And then India, Pakistan did the nuclear test in 98. So coming into late 98, early 99, the New York Times was printing articles saying, this is the most dangerous place on earth. Sort of India and Pakistan, South Asia. Right. So it was in that context that I was trying to raise a fund. Uh, it was really hard. It was really hard. I mean, I would say for every 100 meetings, you know, we had like a 98% rejection rate. You know, people are like, are you stupid to do this thing in India? You know, Asia has just blown up on us and, and India is a dangerous place. It's not appropriate place to, to put capital to work. It's tried. It's untested. Um, having said that, I always believe that, you know, India had gone through macro reforms in 91, often takes time for macro to trickle down into micro. Like the period we're going through now, India was going through a little bit of a crisis in the late 90s. We're going through a credit cycle. And uh, I, in a way, thought it was a good time to start a business because it was. I've always been a contrarian. And so... Yeah, I mean, I think it's, we started then, made lots of mistakes. I, my idea from the beginning was growth capital. I said India is going to grow faster than most other economies. Entrepreneurs are not going to sell you their business, but they'd be happy to dilute and give you a stake, a minority stake. And if you became a partner, you could help them grow the business. That right. was the I think where we got diverted, which is where we made a lot of mistakes, was dot-com, 99-2000. And that, oh, yeah, we'll do minority, but we'll apply it here. And that just blew up because .com never really materialized. It was too early for the Internet at that point. But what really worked were the more of the real world businesses. So I invested in a business called Spectromind, which was one of the first BPOs. I invested in UTI Bank, which became Access Bank very early on. Uh, so a whole bunch of industries where we were early to call them. And then we were also a very flexible investor. I did a lot of pipes, which is private equity in public uh, companies. And we were one of the first ones to do it and convince investors that it was the right format for India. So lots of learning, lots of mistakes. But in that process, what I learned was that the growth capital model was the right one for India. And having flexible, long-term capital was a huge sustainable advantage. Got it. 
Um, you talked about being a contrarian, and it's something that uh, that has developed over a period of time. Uh, how did you hone your skill of uh, being a contrarian uh, in in a complex market like India? And uh, are there some tips that you'd like to offer? Who'd like to uh, for others who might be listening in? Yeah, I think one is uh, when you're a contrarian by nature you have to sort of zig when everybody else is zagging, right? So it's almost like you revel in the fact that you have a different opinion, right? Uh, yeah. Now, it can't always be the case because it works against you. But I read a lot of Buffett and, you know, the other iconic investors. And so one is I was always, I mean, I, I, I focused more on value and less on price. When price went up, you know, I, I was clear to me, that there were fewer bargains, right? And when price went down, most people psychologically are like, oh my God, I'm losing money. I was always like, this is, when price goes down, bargains are available. So my mind actually was attuned through this reading to seeing, to actually looking out for price declines as opposed to, you know, becoming afraid when price declined and having an eye on value, which was the most important thing. So understanding that price value equation, knowing that value is permanent, price is ephemeral, the heart of being a contrarian. Two is, I think you've got to separate yourself a bit from the news cycle. You know, I think those who are in, I was initially in Bombay, and Bombay is a little bit of a rumor mill, but I, I hated to be part of that rumor mill. Um, or even every day, you know, I, I don't look at my phone and track news. Um, and, and I think that just, gets you caught in the news cycle and in you wallow in other people's thoughts uh, versus just having the time to think clearly for yourself. I think actually coming to moving to Delhi was a big advantage because I was away from bankers and research analysts and you know you have the time to think, you meet fewer people, you go and meet them on your terms in Bombay as opposed to being part of that community. It allows you to, to think independently and not be part of the news cycle. A third is to have a healthy skepticism of experts. I mean, right. I, I've never, I mean, I, I value expert opinion, but I, I don't, I'm not gullible, let's put it this way. And I mean, what I've learned is experts, frankly, often have their own incentives. I mean, if you are running a private equity fund or mutual fund, you're always incented to say that the market's going to do well because you want to attract more investors into your fund and so you're never going to be intellectually honest. Or same thing with a research analyst, you know, et cetera. So being, I mean, I, I would always try to understand people's incentives. Management, you know, the same is true. But there are some people who are truth tellers. You know, I mean, Buffett has no reason to lie. He cares more about what people think of him intellectually than trying to sell something to someone. And so are people like Howard Marks and a whole bunch of other people. In India, there are people like that too. So figuring out who are the experts, who are the truth tellers, I think was very important. And then just keeping a focus on reading, like reading comp about companies, about sectors, and, and just you know making that the bulk of your day, as opposed to getting caught in the news cycle, is I think the way at least I train myself to be a contrarian. I think the most important last point is just having control over your own emotions. I mean, those who have been investors will realize that, you know, you, you, uh, I mean, you, you do get invested or emotional about 
companies or about your ideas and and I think having that attached detachment, I think, is very important. Uh, being able to, you know, go down to zero feet to understand companies, but also go down to 30,000 feet to look at them skeptically from time to time. Uh, and I think building that skill is important. And it comes through a combination of reading and thinking and at the same time meeting management and talking to people, which is the zero feet. So, so yeah, it's, it's a training and it's it's... It's not just intellectual training. I think it's emotional training more important. Right. I also remember um, you, after your first guest lecture, you asked us to read the letters uh, that Buffet writes to his uh, shareholders. And all of us went back and read them. And one of the lines that I remember is that uh, a lot of our success has been achieved because we are, I think, intensely rational or something. That's what he said. Um, so thanks for laying out uh, these principles, Ashish. Uh, um, in this section, I just want to conclude this section by asking, when you were uh, stumbling upon success, uh, being a contrarian as an investor, did you have uh, you know, the goalpost in mind, uh, the, the 40 uh, goalposts that you'd set for yourself, 45? Um, and if yes, did you have a like you know like a year by year assessment of what you wanted to accomplish so that you could maybe get on to your second career by by the time you're 45 or something uh no i would say early on no i mean uh, first five years was more about survival you know i had started a fund we went through a, a tough period when the dot-com crash took place uh i was not sure if we would be able to raise a second fund I had to ensure that uh, companies were doing well. I got exits. I was able to raise second fund. I got Harvard and Stanford as two key LPs in that fund. And so, and then the third fund, we sort of cemented ourselves a little bit. Then it was about also getting the right team. We right-sized the team. We got built a partnership track. So I would say the first few years, there was an intense focus on just building the business. Because if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be able to liberate myself I needed not only financial freedom to go on to my second career, but I also wanted to make sure I had built something that could outlive me. Uh, and for that, you know, I had to work really hard on building the foundation and ensuring survival. So I would say the first five to seven years were more about that. When we were in a more comfortable spot by sort of the 2005-06 period, is when I started talking, at least internally to my colleagues, joking that, look, someday I want to do something different. Uh, and the thought re-entered my mind. And, you know, I we raised money, quite a bit of money in 2007. We exited a lot, so we timed it very right in terms of the cycle. And then we had the that downfall, and we, we played that quite well. But I actually went and returned capital to investors. Uh, in late 2008, 2009, just saying, look, you guys are going through a hard time. We raised a lot of money. And partly I was able to do it because I knew that, look, I, I wasn't focused on just greed and making the most, you know, for myself in that window, but really also viewing it as a period where we could get sort of this our partners to understand that we were looking out for their interests, that we had a real deep bench at Quist Capital, and that it was not just reliant on me. And so, yeah, I would say that I, 10 years into starting the firm is when I started acting upon this idea that I could have a second career. And then by the time it was 2010, 
is when I announced internally and to my investor that I was going to move on and then actually had a year and a half uh, transition period before I could move into my new career. Got it. Ashish, should one have backup plans? I think so. I think, look, uh, I'm not a big believer in a plan B in that you first just go for plan A, uh, sort of burn your bridges and, and go for it, right? Otherwise, you can never be an entrepreneur if you always have a back plan for everything. But, you know, there's a worst case plan, which is even when I started Chris Capital, I always looked at it and said, what's the downside? You know, I, I'm lucky. I have a degree from Yale and from Harvard Business School. I doubt if I'm permanently going to be out of a job. I think I have some skills. I have a network. So I've started Chris Capital. If it fails, I can always go work somewhere. Now, I don't have to plan that out to figure out where I'll go work. And so, I mean, a plan B was just simply, I know I'm not going to be on the streets. I know I've got, at least in my case, I knew I could live with my parents for free. So I had the ability to tide it out for uh, a while and uh, go do something else. So that just, you know, in a sense, it wasn't a detail. It was just like, you know, what's the worst? I mean, and when your mind thinks like that, that look, the downside isn't that bad at the end of the day. At least you would have learned a lot. You gave it a shot and then you'll sort of figure things out. So, yeah, I've always had that mindset versus a fixed plan B. Yeah, this is such an important uh, tool to keep in mind and a very useful mental model, uh, I must say, Ashish. A lot of people come to us on Network Capital asking exactly this question. And now I'm going to point point them to this podcast. Uh, um, Ashish, I just want to move on now and explore the education space. Because once you began your second career uh, in a full-fledged fashion, education has been one of the, uh, or the primary um, area of focus. Um, what is your thesis about uh, looking at the education challenges in India? I know it's a very vague question, but I want to start at that level and then dive deep into specifics. Yeah, so firstly, I think uh, we all understand that, you know, education is sort of at the bedrock of social reform and, uh, and economic transformation. You know, it, we know that if you're better educated, you will be a more productive citizen. We know that if you're better educated, you will evolve socially. or As a society, you'll evolve. And some of the ills of tradition and, and, and else will fall aside. Uh, you're more likely to educate your daughters if you are educated, you know, things like that. So we know it's at the bedrock. Um, and investing in human capital is so critical. Uh, we also know that you know, for countries that enter low, sort of middle income status, it's even more important. I mean, when you're dirt poor, you're just focused on doing the very, very simple things like like India did in terms of opening up its economy, trading, you know, taking its already skilled people in, making them more productive. At that stage, it is building very simple infrastructure, getting the incentives right, etc. Now, I think we're at a stage where we've hit 2,500-odd per capita income. You know, the the factors of production have gotten aligned. But as you start to get up to five ten thousand $10,000 per capita income, 
what you realize is that if you don't invest in your people, you get stuck in middle income trap. And that's what's happened with a lot of countries. If you look at Latin America, Latin America, you know, did very well and was the promised land in the 60s and 70s. And then things went sideways, largely because, you know, they didn't invest in education. And then, of course, the politics didn't work out very well. And I think the same is true in Asia, where you look at countries that really invested in education, like Japan and Korea. They are the first Asian countries that really took off and became developed countries, other than Hong Kong, Singapore, which is a small city state. So I think it's evident that education has high payoff, and particularly at a certain stage of development. India had entered that stage of development. And so now, over the next 15 years, it's absolutely critical that we solve for this human capital deficiency, because if we don't, we will be another Mexico or Latin American country that will go sideways, as opposed to breaking out and becoming a developed country someday. So for me, you know, it's partly fashion, the fact that I always wanted to be in education. It's partly what's right for the country, given at this stage of development, it's so critical. And it's partly the fact that we know that it's, it's the bedrock of societal and economic transformation. Correct. Um, Ashish, in the chapter that you've written in Mr. Khan's book, you talk about lifting up the tail and investing in foundational learning. Um, are these the bedrocks of uh, uh, investments and decisions that you've made in Central Square Foundation and uh, some of the other initiatives that you've helped set up? Yeah, I, I would say, look, like everything else, it, it often you learn by doing. We did a number of things in our first five years at CSF. And I, I mean, if, if I was smarter, maybe it would have dawned on me earlier and I would have focused on just this as the core from the outset. But yeah, I mean, I think we instinctively knew this was most important. But I think when we started to narrow the focus is when we made it our number one priority in a sense. Um, so yes, foundational learning is critical. I think if you just look at the data, it's obvious that by third grade, somewhere between 50 to 75% of the children are falling behind, whether it's on the metric of reading, writing, basic arithmetic, you know, about two thirds of the children are falling behind. And once they fall behind, they fall behind permanently. Because if you can't, if you don't learn to read, you can't read to learn. You know, there's that important transition in third grade, from learning to read to reading to learn. So you're, the doors of knowledge are shut out for you. You, know, you can't transact the fifth grade textbook if you can't read. You can't do fractions in algebra if you don't understand addition and subtraction, multiplication, division. So these are building blocks. So we think it's absolutely essential for the country to focus on this. The data shows you clearly. And then if you look at other countries that have succeeded, you know, why was Korea so successful? Korea invested in a big way in foundational numeracy literacy in the 60s and early 70s. Korea and India had almost the same per capita income at that time. Korea right. made this investment and then Korea took off. Vietnam has been doing this off late. You know, Vietnam has prioritized foundational numeracy and literacy. And it's no surprise. You can see it in the data now. 
there is export manufacturing. It's not coming to India. So I, I think one is recognizing even within it, if you want children to continue and want them to be able to, you know, see. but in terms of economic, I think it's very, very clear that if you can invest, because most jobs in India don't require a higher ed degree. Most jobs don't even require a high school degree. I mean, when was the last time you used trigonometry or calculus? Or, or logarithms. Uh, yeah, or logs or coordinate jobs. I mean, you don't, frankly, in most jobs. If you can just read, write, speak confidently, if you can do basic math and be logical in your thinking and not get fooled in terms of you know basic financial stuff, you're more likely to succeed in life. And so I think that's why the foundational is so critical. Got it. Um, has India managed to lift up the tail? And uh, in your work, what have been uh, some of the major challenges in lifting up the tail and improving learning outcomes? So I, I think, look, firstly, it's a question of prioritization. I think India has not come out till very recently, till the new education policy came out. Uh, in draft form uh, last year and finally got finalized is that, you know, we've now called out, never done it in the past to say foundational learning is the number one priority. Now it's very clear. And even we've put a, we've even put a timeline to it, saying by 2025, we want to achieve success, which is the majority of have achieved this. So I think this is fantastic. Firstly, it's a question of prioritizing it, recognizing it's most important. Two is we need measures. We need independent data. We need to know what that goal is. And, you know, we know with literacy, there is a ladder. And so you can measure it at every stage. Are children recognizing letters? Are children able to decode uh, words? Are they, do they have a minimum vocabulary? Can they read a sentence? Can they read at a certain speed or reading fluency? Can they read with comprehension? Can they write? So there's a ladder and we can measure it at every stage. Same thing with mathematics. And having a goal, overarching goal for every grade is very, very important. You know, Peru is the most improved country in PISA. The president got up and said, in second grade, children should be reading 40 words per minute. In third grade, 60 words per minute. Every teacher, every parent in the country knew that goal. And they went about then measuring every month every teacher would measure formative assessment. And they had strategies for ch children reading 10 words per minute, 20 words per minute, and they've eventually achieved youth success. So I think you need to have the goals, you need to measure uh, and then move accordingly. Third is we need the tools. You know, we need simple tools like um, lesson plans for teachers, the training for the teachers, the, the sort of scaffolding around formative assessment, for them to know what to do at each stage if children are falling behind. So strategies around lifting the tail. Um, so I think with, with teachers who are the most important, we need to provide them these tools so that we can bring about a change and training so that we can change the classroom transaction. Because if that doesn't change, nothing will change. So I think that's a third very, very important uh, piece. And then fourthly, you know, in terms of the curriculum, I think India already has a reasonably good curriculum. You just need to 
you know, make sure it's age appropriate, simplified, put into chunks uh, so that it's easy for the teacher to understand what you're going to measure at each stage and it's and it's achievable. You can actually transact that curriculum and it starts at the right point. I think our curriculum often is over ambitious. I, I think we can do a few of these things and get the system aligned around this. That is the number one priority that will make basic resource. The teachers already there. It's a question of saying, I'll make sure that the teachers have a teacher guide with the lesson plans. I'll make sure children have workbooks and make sure the, the classrooms have a basic library. So if I want children to read, those things cost like three, four hundred rupees per child on top of what we're already spending. So it's a, not a huge expenditure. And, and I think it's very achievable in the next five years. Right. Um, so there is, uh, I mean, there are two points I want to explore more. One is the importance of having, uh, having a goal which is uh, very clearly understandable. So U.S., you've written about the fact that they've had, uh, uh, say, state-to-state -state competitive federalism to augment goals. Um, are there some things that uh, India can learn in terms of uh, scaling its, uh, you know, quest of enhancing learning outcomes? Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. You know, I would say for a moment, let's not even look outside. Let's look within. I think the Prime Minister's initiative on Swachh Bharat is a great example of getting into mission mode, um, having a clear objective around uh, open defecation uh, or, or, or defecation-free uh, districts and blocks, and then providing some support as well at the district level uh, to help the system, but having a clear, uh, you know, goal, uh, it's measured. Now you can argue that maybe we're measuring the how many toilets were built, and maybe the behavior change didn't happen. But at least, and even on the behavior change, I know there was a campaign and work was done. But right. to me, it's a classic example of how we put it into mission mode. There was someone who was clearly accountable. Uh, IS officer who was driving it, uh, states and districts were energized. Uh, once they reached a certain milestone, they were assessed and a, a, a tick mark was put in front of them. They were celebrated. So you had both the demand side incentive where people wanted to achieve this goal and they understood the goal. And then on the supply side, you had budgets and you had some resources on the ground, training protocols, uh, the corporate sector was brought in to provide CSR and, and uh, to the extent that that could complement what government is doing. So I, I think we need a similar, we've done it before in other areas like Swachh Bharat. And so why can't we do it with uh, foundational learning if we put it into a similar mission mode? Got it. Um, Ashish, in, in one of your interviews with uh, Pranav uh, Kothari, you talked about the complexity of India. Say you, you you spoke about the example in Maharashtra, for example, uh, about the challenges of scaling um, quality education there. Do you think Central Square's aim of uh, ensuring quality education can be uh, scaled? And if yes, how can we contextualize it with respect to different regions and languages and contexts? What I'm really trying to understand is, um, what is the kind of uh, building block that we, we need and what are the kind of customizations that we need to do to scale quality education? 
Yeah. So firstly, we are one of many participants in education. And I always say we stand on the shoulders of others who have done phenomenal work in India. So I think the good news is in India, whilst we may not have had system reform, you see it from the Yasser data that learning levels really haven't improved much in the last 14, 15 years. What we have seen is, is pockets of excellence. So there are several nonprofits that in terms of foundational learning, you know, whether it's uh, Yanshala or LLF or Room to Read, Pratham, uh, who have shown that you can really improve learning outcomes and at reasonable scale. And they've worked with state governments to do it, often at a district level or a block level. So I, I, we don't have to even look to Kenya or Peru. We can say, look, we have the tools, we have the methods, people have done it here. Now it's a question of how do we get the system to imbibe this, as opposed to an NGO running its own program, how can we build the capacity of the system? How can we white label all the tools? How can we get the system aligned around this so that and make the NGOs the technical partner as opposed to the implementing body to work with state governments to make it happen? So I think firstly, there is an overarching playbook, right, which the center can roll out to states. And I think the good news with the new education policy is it not only talks at a high level, but it has some concrete ideas about what could be done in foundational learning. And now the government will have an implementation plan, uh, which the center will have in a playbook for states. I think, as you rightly said, we are a very diverse country and states will have to contextualize it. So, you know, oral reading fluency, a target may be one at, in one state like Bihar and in Goa, it may be different because the starting points are different. The language complexity is very different for each language, etc. The tools will have to be different. But I think the playbook could be similar. And then, you know, the nice thing with India is we have NGO partners in different states. So I think states will obviously have their own programs, you know, derived out of a, a, a national mission. But the goals, you know, we have a common set of goals. We can calibrate depending on the state uh, for what... Who, hoop they need to jump and then also a bunch of technical partners in each state who can help contextualize develop the materials you know etc so i'm not suggesting by any means uh, something uniform already each state develops its own curriculum etc but you know we can ensure that every classroom at least gets a teacher guide the appropriate workbooks the appropriate reading material for children big books posters you know that could be a standard kit but the material would be in local language and contextualized for their context, obviously. Got it. Um, what about EdTech, Ashish? Has it fulfilled its promise in India? Someone once said that in India, you don't have EdTech. You have education solutions and tech solutions, which people call EdTech. Is that a fair assessment or do you think this person is being harsh? No, so I think, look, last, firstly, tech initially was used more as uh, an enabler. You know, I think mostly tech's been used historically. Um, either it meant computer literacy program or it meant this is a, your tech enabling something, right? Um, even Smart Class by Edcom was delivered that. Yeah, we'll bring you uh, videos into the classroom kind of thing. I think what tech has evolved to now is personalized adaptive learning. And I think that can be quite powerful. 
So is it today ready to scale? I'm not as sure. I think we need more supply in the vernacular, which is aimed at India 2 and India 3. Most of Baidu's and uh, Tupper and all the for-profit companies still cater to the top segment of India. So we need products for India 2 and India 3, which will contextualize, will be in the vernacular, we need to be either very, very cheap or free. Uh, we need um, parents to understand that the device, which needs to be shared. I mean, Baiju's you can bundle with a tab in, in an upper-income household and give it to the child. In a low-income household, they'll be using the parents' phone. So involving the parents uh, or teachers uh, would be very, very different. The context is different. So I think we're early in the journey of personalized adaptive learning for children. I, but I think using tech as a tool, we, we, can, we are ready. So as uh, when I mentioned foundational learning, could we give the teacher an app with her lesson plan and some resources? Yes, we can do it right now. And teachers already have smartphones. Diksha, which is the national platform where we have energized textbooks with QR codes in each chapter. Could the teacher scan it and get her lesson plan and video to show to the class? Yes. Could we get the middle management who comes to visit schools, you know, have an app? And we've developed such apps. Uh, with a checklist to observe the classroom and give feedback to teachers in a structured form or to take videos of the teacher so they can show it to the teacher. Yes, I, I think we can start using technology even in the offline program to enhance the program. And then additionally, we can experiment with personalized adaptive learning, build the supply side, build the evidence and get ready to scale you know, in the coming year. Understood. Um, Ashish, let's explore human capital development a little bit. Um, many states, if not all states, don't really have an HR policy or an organizational development policy. I remember one of your quotes once was that I wish sometimes uh, the education space ran with the rigor at which financial services work. Uh, are we taking steps in this direction of ensuring the best teachers uh, have the best tools uh, to get there? Uh, if yes, uh, how, and if not, what should we do? Yeah, so I, I think you ask a very important question. Look, firstly, I think on the HR side, we've always talked about teacher education and, you know, pre-service, which is before they become teachers, reforming that is essential. But it's a, you know, it'll have an impact over the next 20 years because the, the attrition is, is small. So our first order of business is how do we improve what we already have. And I think for that, we have to start with some structural changes, which is right now, if you look at the education department in any state, the department does everything, everything from policies to running the school system to even figuring out, you know, what the private schools are to be doing. Uh, I think we need to, like any sector, if you look at the reforms in the airline sector, the utilities sector, any sector, telecom sector, what we did many years ago is we took these departments and we carved them out into three entities. The department, which is responsible for policy setting and administration. There's a body that's responsible for execution, like BSNL was transferred out to a company. So similarly, Maharashtra could have a body that runs its school system. And the, one of the reasons the KBs and, and the Navodaya Vidyal is run well is they have a separate body 
you know, that runs it. So as opposed to an IAS officer who's coming every one, two years and trying to run the school system in the state, could we actually have a separate body that runs the school system? A department that supervises it and, and focuses more on policy. And separately, we need a sort of quality assurance body or regulator, which provides uh, the basic light touch regulation and quality assurance of both the private and public school system in India. Um, so I think if we looked at it like that, if you look at telecom, you have a department, you then have, you know, independent providers, both private, like Geo, Airtel, Vodafone, but also public, BSL, MPNL, so similarly private and public providers of education. And then a third is the regulator, like TRAI, some equivalent of that, but also ensuring quality assurance. So I think that's a systemically a model we need to move to. The new education policy does allude to some of this. And then, of course, once we do that, look at building capacity at different levels. And I think if you look at the KV system or the NV system, they do a much better job of that uh, because they have people at all levels, you know, uh, running the system and they're all generally homegrown from within the system. Understood. Um, in terms of uh, the uptake of ed tech uh, in the COVID aftermath, do you expect some changes to become permanent? Do you think that the ed tech uh, solutions, the overall human capacity development indicators uh, are basically getting top talent to teach? Do you think that will see some fundamental changes? If yes, what? Look, I think that change is already coming. I think what COVID was, is doing is it's accelerating a trend. But um, so, yeah, if we look at, say, ed tech adoption by parents even for in school it is increasing i mean i think you're seeing the for-profit companies also making their products available for free making them more accessible we've developed at csf some products tic tac learn top parents which a bunch of state governments and telcos and others are rolling out um, because they are free resources for children both in the early years but also in school uh, but can be used at home on the parent's smartphone. And we've seen uh, definitely a lot of increased uptake in the recent past, but also chief ministers who've been willing to endorse the products that we have launched. And partly because they want to show parents that they're doing something whilst the children are out of school. So it's, it's clearly provided inroads and accelerated what would have been a trend otherwise. But I do want to lend some caution. I, I mean, like, say, if you take higher education where like at Ashoka we transitioned to online teaching yeah. and, and and had to do it quickly. Now is online teaching a substitute for the physical? I, I'm not quite sure. I think at Ashoka you've been in the Young India Fellowship. Right. You know, I I, I don't think it's a substitute uh, of having a professor who you can engage with, who is in the classroom, or even a peer group. And, and the fun of going to college. I mean, if I had gone to Yale sitting in my bedroom, it would have been a horrible experience. I wouldn't be who I am. So I, I, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves and also suggest that everything's going to be disruptive. I mean, I think children need to go to school. They won't be social animals. And, we, you know, there's so much to learn from your peers, from your teachers, from just the discipline of waking up in the morning and getting out and going to school for your mental health, for your parents also who need you away. 
for them to have productive lives without you for time. So I, I'm not a big believer that we're going to bust it. Education technology will help. It will hopefully help. Right now, it's only accelerated the learning of the rich or the motivated learner. I think mm -hmm. what we need instead is to view education technology as a tool to bridge the education divide, as a tool to reduce inequity. And that will only happen if we say that, look, this teacher currently cannot lift the tail. And so half the kids are still not succeeding. And can I provide some remedial tool that will help assist the teacher in making that happen? If we can achieve that, and I believe we will in the next five to 10 years, that will be the real success of EdTech. Success of EdTech is not to take the student who's already a motivated learner, who's going to a CBSC or ICSC school and helping them, you know, crack some entrance exam. I mean, yeah, it is for the for-profit companies. But I think the real success will be for those children, I told you in the ASA report, who are falling behind, can we help bridge the gap? Can we ensure that they can learn to read, write, do basic math? And we won't be doing it alone. We'll be doing it alongside the teacher. We'll be doing it alongside the parent. That, to me, would be the real success of that day. Right. Uh, thanks, Ashish. Uh, does it worry you that our budgets are on the lower side? No, I don't think so. You know, a lot of people say India needs to spend 6% of GDP, the government, on education. Let, I'm a realist. I mean, firstly, our, our tax to GDP is at half the level where developed Western countries are. So, so firstly, that. Two is our private sector is much larger. In, in those countries, it's all public sector. So when you add up private and government, it's well over 5%, almost 55 being spent on education. And, and so I'm a realist. It, it's not going to happen. It's not like government can afford to spend 6% uh, you know, of GDP. Uh, the public system can't. It, it will continue to spend just about 3%. And that's appropriate. We just need to make it more efficient. Uh, we need our goals to be clear. We need to energize the system. Uh, and I think with the same spend as a percent of GDP, we can achieve amazing results. So I'm not one to suggest that we ought to increase the fiscal envelope because I'm a realist. Everybody else would be doing that. In fact, I think India needs to be using its additional fiscal space to build infrastructure and to create jobs uh, as opposed to putting more money into education. I think with the same money in education, we can still achieve the goals that we want. And by the way, other countries have done it. Got it. Ashish, um, every time uh, there is a job opening uh, in Central Square Foundation, um, hundreds of people from Network Capital become super curious. They schedule time with us to prepare. So let's hear straight from you. Who makes a solid professional at CSF? And how can you chart out a career, a meaningful one, and a satisfying and a successful one in the development space? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so look, I, I think CSF is a certain type of organization. So I, I can tell you about us and I can generalize also. I, I think CSF, look, we are small. We are right now 70 plus people. So obviously we don't recruit too many people every year. I think foundations pay better than NGOs. So that's attractive. Foundations often, you know, give you a wider exposure. So that's often attractive for younger people who after a couple of years want to go to grad school. Um, so for that profile, yeah, I mean, we are sometimes a stepping stone. Sometimes we're about 
you know, I have the passion for doing this. My parents will let me experiment for a couple of years before I go to grad school. And that's fine. I understand that. I think in later years, what we're looking for is someone who's completely mission aligned, someone who wants to do this for the rest of their life, and somebody who, frankly, could have gotten a job anywhere. Uh, but really, it's the best talent uh, who we want working on these because these are hard, complex problems. Frankly, harder than the problems we face in the corporate sector. There's no way we can solve them with uh, talent that is subpar or B grade. So I'm very, very focused on the quality of talent we have. I think the sector as a whole has seen an improvement in the talent coming in as more young people have a social conscience and want to contribute towards uh, improving the country and building a new India. Um, I think having said that, they, they do, do need sort of to be skilled and trained. And, you know, ISDM, which is another institution that I've been involved with, I'm a founder of Indian School of Development Management, plays a, an important role, as do other programs, like many of the fellowships. I mean, at ISDM, you go for one year, it's like an IM for the social sector. And now we're coming up with the new ISDM 2.0, which is much more focused on management. And so right. the idea there is, you know, if you really want to be a leader in the social sector, you should be going to an IM type of institution that's customized for the sector. So programs like that. So I, I'm quite hopeful that if if we can build these kinds of initiatives. And ILSS, Indian Leaders to Social Sector, is another program that I helped start, which is more focused at corporate crossovers. So I think we'll see more talent coming in. We just need to, you know, get them to unlearn a bit and also get them reoriented for the sector and give them the toolkit to succeed in the sector. Uh, I mean, ISDM and Network Capital recently joined hands for uh, for the lecture series that you're running, and the response from the community has been phenomenal. So I'm really excited by how much this sector appeals to the millennials, and I think the two points that you laid out in your answer will really help them think through which stage they want to intervene and what problem they want to solve. Um, Ashish, just a final few set of questions, if you have a few more minutes. Um, of course. Yeah. Ashish, is there something that you've changed your mind about in the education uh, space in India? You've been doing this now for, uh, for, a, for, for a very long time, full time. Um, would love to hear some thoughts on it. Yeah, I think a couple of things. One is uh, I've become more and more convinced that system reform is the key. I don't think there's a silver bullet like you were asking human capital. Is just training our teachers going to be sufficient? No, um, there is no silver bullet. I think you need a combination of a variety of different things and it has to be system led. Otherwise, it will fizzle out. So I think one thing I have learned is that system reform, I think, is the key and we all need to work on. Of course, NGOs need to work on developing new solutions and showing how it can be done. But I think they need to bring a little bit of this system lens to it. Thinking about not just implementing, but how do they get the system to shift, I think is very important. And, and therefore, the NGO playing more of a technical partner role. So that's a shift in my thinking that NGOs have a very important role to play in terms of doing the R&D, showing how things work, developing new tools, but also can be this technical partner in this transformation to system reform. In, they just have to let go of some of their proprietary material, be willing to white label, be willing to co-create with the government, 
and being open to partnering. And I think if they can develop that skill set, they can get much better ROI on their initial investment. So that's one shift in my thinking. A second one in education is, I think we all know this, or everybody is very focused on school and improving schooling. Children learn so much outside of school. And so I think focusing on the parents early on, because parents play an important role, I, I think, it's, and, and very few people have figured out interventions uh, to get the parents into the home environment. Uh, and so if we can sh make some shift there, I think that would be a game changer. I think also just making learning more exciting for the child. And, and I think EdTech could do some elements of that gamification, making it fun uh, so that they're being exposed to the wider world and learning. So I think bringing out the best in the child and because they are active learners, they're curious. Schools sometimes kill creativity. And can you keep that alive through other means, through exploration? And then the parents, you know, can we get the parent to play a little bit more active role and give them the tools? I think those are things I've maybe started to pay more attention to. I think this idea of mission mode and goal setting is something that I'm, I'm completely sold on. I think, you know, I've seen the power of it in the last few years as our government has driven many different missions. So if we can, if our country just says we want to get in a mission mode, if we can define the goals, we can get people energized. I know this will happen. And so I, I hope we do the same for foundational learning as well. Yeah, the final uh, short questions on your personal habits. Um, I know you don't check your phone often. That was the first thing you told us when you came uh, for your lecture. Tell us some things about your habits that have helped, that still help you learn new things quickly. And uh, talk to me a bit about what you do beyond work. Uh, clearly work's keeping you very busy, but uh, give us a flavor of uh, your personality to those who don't know you. Yeah, so I would say one is um, I'm, I'm still a bit of a Luddite. I'm, I'm not a very, very tech savvy person. And, um, you know, almost as a matter of habit, I, I'm, I'm not on social media. I, I, I have some stupid picture of me in a suit on Facebook because my secretary <laughs> uploaded it uh, many years ago and it, I've never even changed. I never go to Facebook. I've never gone to LinkedIn, although I have a profile there. Uh, I signed up for Twitter and got off it very quickly because it just was taking up too much time. So um, I know young people all use social media and they should. And I'm not, I just, I, I found it, I already had a busy day and it was just taking up too much time. And I, I just also felt with, with social media, you know, when I even Twitter, which, you know, I could pick the people I wanted to follow. I was wallowing in other people's thoughts and, and I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to just be in the stream of new cycle and flow of information is too much already. And so I want to disconnect a little bit from that. So I think one is this, that's my habit. I mean, I can stay, if my phone weren't working for like three days, it wouldn't be the end of the world. If I go on vacation, I'm okay checking things in the morning, locking my phone in the safe for the whole day, swimming in the pool, hanging out uh, by the beach and checking it at night. And frankly, I wouldn't miss anything, you know? Somebody I can, whoever really needs to know has my wife's phone and they can find a way to reach me or some other phone. So I've always learned in life that, you know, if you can separate the urgent from the important and you can sort of reduce the noise level in your life, uh, stay away from, I, I, you have to do it. I mean, you have to some point respond to email and pick up the phone and respond, but you don't have to respond to every phone call. 
you know, as it comes. You just say, listen, when I'm going to work in the morning or coming back in the evening, I'll respond. And maybe something's really important, I'll take it during the day. So I always like the fact that, you know, Buffett sits in his office all day long. He reads 500 pages. He barely answers the phone. I mean, that to me is like an ideal way to get work done. You know, just to be in the zone, to be focused, to not be distracted. So that's one habit. Two is I like sort of working in bursts. So like right now, the global economy is in tatters, and I've not focused on investing for many years. My brother runs, uh, we have a family investment office, and I feel it's important right now for me to stay on top of investments in addition to doing my normal work. So I wake up at 4.30 every day, and from 4.30 to about 8.30, I stay on top of investments, you know, I, what's on going on globally, read up on companies, try to track sectors, and that's a four-hour sort of non-stop endeavor. So just like work in these chunks, uh, keep the noise away, just chunks of work, not being distracted. That's worked well for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I like having fun at work. So I'm, I like joking around. I, I can be very serious and, and drive accountability and express a lot of displeasure. But I'm also quite non-hierarchical and, and easygoing. And I, I think that has worked with my personality, but it's also, I feel, made me effective in, in my style. As far as fun is concerned, you know, I, uh, I, I like going to the gym quite regularly. Uh, helps me clear my head and, and be more much more effective. I mean, right now at home, I, I still exercise every day. I play badminton. I play some cricket with my son. So I think sport and gym is important to me. Uh, I love beer, and so I have a beer every day. I, I'm an expert on beer, and I like socializing. <laughs> I can't socialize now, but I'll still enjoy my drink and, uh, you know, catch up with friends over Zoom, but I prefer to do it in the real world. And then, um, you know, in terms of interests, I mean, I, I like sort of music from the 80s when I grew up, and I... I, uh, you know, I like, I have some reading interests, which I sort of keep up, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do work pretty hard, but uh, you know, I, I, I believe that you got to have, you only live one life, so you have to have a lot of fun. I mean, I want to be able to go out and, and, and see friends and, and dance and enjoy music and, you know, do all the, have lots of fun vacations. So life would be too short if I'm going to miss out on all of that. Ashish, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for your time and for your insights. Uh, this goes out to uh, almost a million people now. And I'm sure whether they are Indians, South Asians or uh, people in the West, they'll have a ton to reflect and learn. Really appreciate your time. And uh, I hope you don't panic work during the COVID crisis. And I hope we get to meet in flesh and blood soon. Absolutely. Now, thank you so much. And it's so much fun to do this with you and uh, you know so proud that as a, an Ashoka grad and a YF grad you, you've uh, done amazing things in your life but most importantly you're doing this. Uh, thank you Ashish I keep learning from the best like you it's uh, it's really fun see you see you very soon. <laughs>